and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. And I'm Sean KB. And we are here with a very, very special guest today, Leslie the third of a great podcast called Struggle Session. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. It's a real pleasure on this side because we have been Struggle Session fans for some time now, and uh, it's really good to have you on. We love your work, and... Uh, we're going to do some sort of, I don't know, media criticism ourselves. Uh, well, here, here's the thing. The reason I you know decided to come on your show is because I noticed that you have been doing you know media critique from mm -hmm. a leftist perspective, and that's our gimmick. So you need to, um, <laughs> I'm here to tell you <laughs> that you need to find something else. Okay. okay. <laughs> so instead of like, I thought you were going to say, well, I'm going to teach you how to do it better, but instead you're protecting your terrain. I, I, oh, respect, absolutely. I respect it. I respect it. Well, listen, this might be the last time we do it. Uh, if you know, you convince us, maybe we'll back off your turf. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see how um, it goes. <laughs> I should note that uh, Andy is not here. He has actually moved into the Casa de Leon Trotsky in De Efe in order to practice his chattery because he was so inspired by the example set by Trotsky's life story, which we discussed in the last episode. Yeah, that's right. He's uh, going to become a full uh, Chad. He is going to dress in leather. In fact, we saw some pictures already. And uh, he's going to try to find a Frida Kahlo uh, lookalike to uh, have passionate, uh, never nude sex with. Good luck, Andy. Yeah, good luck, man. We're we're all rooting for you. <laughs> you can do it. So Leslie Lee the Third has joined us today to talk about hashtag resistance television and media. Yeah, um, what do you think about all this, Leslie? Are they going to, in fact, uh, succeed at uh, overthrowing Trump and restoring uh, <laughs> unity to the union? You know, they got him. They got him. <laughs> I was just, you know, I saw this great thing called bear put up where he did a presidential memo but oh it was God, written in crayon oh Can you believe that wow he misspelled stuff <laughs> he accidentally called putin his boss it's so funny it's hilarious like th th that's it i don't know how trump is going to wriggle out of this one it's that kind of memory that really uh you know puts a pol some political punch yeah speak but speaking truth to power really Oh, so we talk a lot about Struggle Session on the show. I hosted with uh, Jack Allison, who actually used to write for the Jimmy Kimmel Folk Show, and Jonathan Daniel Brown, who is an actor and a comedian in his own right. And I just want to say to anybody who thought that comedy would get better under Trump, <laughs> you were 110,000% wrong. Yeah. It's awful. None of these people are funny, and none of them are funnier than Trump himself. That's right. Trump so is so much funnier than all of them put together. Just the hamburger thing alone. <laughs> they have spent tens of thousands of man hours at all these shows, all these nighttime shows. They even have a cartoon. None of them could come up with a bit as funny as Trump nope. serving like 500 Big Macs <laughs> to the Clemson football team. Just like uh, <laughs> lukewarm uh, hockey puck fucking Chick-fil-A is laid out in pyramids for these uh, these champions of their league. It's, uh, it is incredible. You're right. Um, Jamie and I often, when we're uh, listening to a news story or reading something, we try to we say if, if we could abstract ourselves away and just like uh, from the consequences of the Trump presidency, no, the horrific things happening, funny. it is legitimately it is a very silly, a hilarious, hilarious presidency. Right <laughs> and you know what? They can't take that away from us. 
<laughs> no, no, it, and, and it's so fun. it's much funnier to watch him than it is to watch any of these people try to comment on him or take them down. But it's really not about the comedy. It's about substituting, you know, entertainment and humor and snark. People yes. like to use that word snark for like actual political action and resistance. And apparently that makes some percentage of the population feel better. I can't judge. I don't feel that way. I don't understand it, but it seems to be a lot of like a lot of people need that start snark in their lives and rather that than like actual uh, political victory. Yeah. Or even just political organizing. Right. Because I think you, you the word feelings you put in there is really, really important. Right. Uh, it's very much about this, you know, our subjective sense that, you know, the world could be better or acknowledgement that, you know, we feel I don't know. We feel put off by this Trump world, but like this validates that that we're not crazy, right? When uh, feelings don't really have much to do with it, except to the extent that it uh, compels people to organize and take political action. And uh, I don't think that the uh, Colbert Report or Bill Maher or The Daily Show is really up to that task. Hey, people are taking political action. All right, they're gonna vote in November, <laughs> and that's how you defeat the fash. It's next November. Whatever. Uh, it, it also sucks because he might still throw all of those people in jail. And then we get into a situation where you're like, Ugh, can they both lose? Like fucking William Barr was questioned by Amy Klobuchar the other day in his confirmation hearing. Did, did you guys do you guys know what I'm talking about? No, no. She uh, yeah. she asked him point blank, like, would you support putting journalists in jail just for doing their jobs? And he did not say no. <laughs> like Oof. the only answer to that that's not like horrifyingly fucked up is no. And he didn't say that. But that, uh, that is funny you mention that because it also brings another point. It's like all these people weren't resisting when Obama was elected. Yes. And when um, Holder was asked if Obama was allowed to dr do a drone strike in the U.S. and he did not answer no. He answered, well, I don't know why the president would do that. But, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's that's kind something of, you want a straight answer. To. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily a lateral move between the two, but, you know, same vibe. These are people in power. They are always, you know, pretty much awful. And so like having this sudden, you know, desire for the, you know, the veneer of resistance uh, under one under the um, red president instead of the blue president, it ultimately has to be you know very facile and like oh, not yeah. really serious. And of course, it flips the other way too. And this is like a banal point now because we've all seen it. But uh, you know, the under Obama uh, or especially under Clinton, right when he got uh, supposedly a blowjob in the Oval Office, uh, there was so much talk on the right. Um, right wing and conservatives and Republicans about the decency of the office and not disrespecting you oh, know, yeah. the presidency. And of course, that completely all went away when uh, uh, President Cheeto came to power. That's the one good thing about Trump is like he has possibly destroyed all that for good. It was never true that neither liberals or conservatives should ever bought into the bullshit about the how respect how much respect you have to have for the office. And I'm glad Trump has like done away with this entirely. He's good for something. Yeah. yeah. But but I, do you do you really have faith? I'm I'm not sure if I do that these resistance folks if say like uh Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren to, were to become president, that they wouldn't revert back to form, that they wouldn't uh, again. Yeah, we're restoring the norms. Right. 
I feel like people will try to, but like Trump, especially in the next two years, Trump is going to do so much damage, both good and bad, to the norms that I don't know if you can really, you know, um, resist your way out of it, even if a Cory Booker or a Kamala Harris um, becomes president. There's not enough donuts in the world for that resistance. Yeah, you can't come back from this. Well, uh, let's hope that uh, if that is true, and I think you're probably right about it, that uh, not coming back redounds to our side, not to yes. the white nationalists and the, um, I don't know, psychopathic uh, Republican Party uh, with more tax cuts and more wars and all that happy horseshit. There is a third faction that has developed, unfortunately, as the most possibly the most terrifying one, and that's the radical centrist, the yeah. radical st status quo person. They may be the scariest of all because I don't know what they believe, but they believe it very strongly and they will fight <laughs> us to the death. That is actually a point that we are going to bring up because beyond resistance in general media we've got a couple of cultural artifacts uh that we're going to explore today and uh certainly that sense of uh, a radical center and norm erosion uh is going to come up uh when we're talking about these things so so we're going to be talking today about the handmaid's tale which folks might have heard of before and then also a series of films about uh, the purge wah, wah. Pew, 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 pew. And we're going to contrast them with the question in mind, why these pieces of art? You know, why The Handmaid's Tale and why The Purge? Why, at what moment, at this moment, what do they fulfill for the American people and just, you know, consumers of media uh, in general? So The Handmaid's Tale, dun, dun, dun. More like Handmaid's Fail, am I <laughs> oh. right? <laughs> Good one. Thanks, babe. Let's start off, before we drag this too much, let's start off with what we like about the show because it's not a completely bankrupt show, right? It's not uh, like that. What's that Tim Allen one that he came out with, Last, Last Man, Man Standing? Standing. Uh, although that would be interesting to analyze too. But We're, we're a little late on that one because <laughs> yeah, it's are. already canceled. But uh, the news it's, cycle... It's canceled again because it came back. Oh, right. Uh, it's back on Fox Okay, now. you know what? We might be able to do that. I think the news cycle for podcasts is a little bit longer <laughs> than the news cycle for other things. So we'll see. So, Leslie, what did you like about The Handmaid's Tale? Why do you think? Um, if anything. If anything. And so, I, first, I want to say I haven't seen The Complete Handmaid's Tale, but I think the mark of a professional podcaster is to not watch something and still have a strong take about it. <laughs> well, I, think, right. I think I've seen enough to get the gist of it. And I would say that... What it does, you know, kind of well is it looks it looks prettier than the other um, prestige, strong air quotes TV shows. It actually tries to have some cinematic values in some of the scenes. It's not just people talking in rooms all the time. Right. Other than that, um, I don't. Other than other than that, um, that's basically it. Like it looks and feels like what a prestige TV show should be. It really gets that part down. That doesn't mean it's good. It just means that it checks all the boxes and should win Emmys or whatever they give to TV shows where people just stand around crying at each other. I, I assume you're not talking about the music drops there, right? Because some of them are quite embarrassing. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if I really noticed any of the music, but, you know, like when the woman gets hanged, I think in the third episode, 
that's a pretty good scene. They show her in the van, and then they show her being hung from the view of the van. Like somebody actually took the time to kind of think that out. It was almost as good as a video game cutscene. That, that's why the music drops are so very jarring. Because you're right. Like the rest of it, they really get the style like dead on. And then they'll play like a fucking Katy Perry song or something at the end, and you're yeah. like, really? Yeah. What the? Fuck? Oh like, yeah, yeah. The end songs are always re- very, very weird. Like whose kid is in charge of the music at this show? Because that's the only reason they still have a job. Some I think it's supposed to be ironic, maybe. It's like, oh, look at all we've lost. Now we don't have Carrie, Kate, all this <laughs> suffering, and, and not even Carrie Perry around to lift yeah. our spirits. Not even, even though I, I think technically she might be a little bit down with the, um, with the, with you know, giving her upbringing as you know, like a hardcore uh, Christian fanaticist. She actually might be okay with Gilead. Ooh, you think? Ooh. Uh, you think her whole thing with uh, jumping on the Hillary bandwagon was just a ruse? I think it's compa- it can be compatible. I think the show argues that certain like you know cert- certain types of not really well thought out feminism like is are compatible with this horrible patriarchal structure as well. Like it can be scooped up in the cult in the contradiction because it's a religious cult. It can have contradictions. Mm. You can and 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 that, and that's fine. I think you can maybe. I think there's some people who say, you know, this is a simple life. This is a better way. This is, you know, especially when you had that material issue of uh, the kid, kids not being born, babies not being right. born. That would drive a lot of people to some drastic and bizarre and crazy things that may go against some of their core values, but they may feel like in a utilitarian sense, this is ultimately necessary. Right. I mean, city of, uh, I'm sorry, children of men, right. Is the other great, like, um, I don't know, natalist dystopia. Right. And that's also about a crisis of, uh, you know, reproduction. And, um, I think that in general, the conception that society would, if not fall apart, but at least go through some deep uh, crises if all of a sudden the birth rates were to decline rapidly like that. Uh, that's certainly realistic uh, in my book. Um, well, I, th- we might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but it as long as there were enough people to like keep the human race going somewhat, a drop in birth rate wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if we were able to move past capitalism. Right? Oh, sure, because yeah. the primary threat that it poses at least in the short term if we have like a bit of a drop in birth rate like we've been seeing in the u.s and uh japan and other countries around the world is that it is bad for the economy but you know if you're producing things for their use value and you are just trying to make sure everyone's taken care of then it's actually fine until you know until you get to the point where the human race is dying out but right the children of men point right so maybe the handmaid's tale isn't quite that crisis but um yeah um i was i'm gonna go into what i like about it but uh something you said leslie kind of jogged my memory on one interesting fact about this which is that elizabeth moss the star of this show about a religious cult that is authoritarian has violent tendencies and is and all I just encompassing I just want to say how brave she is for taking this role. I'm glad she's gotten <laughs> so many Emmys for this. Please, please continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. I, no, no. I think, Leslie, you're, you're completely picking up what I was putting down there. Uh, Elizabeth Moss as a Scientologist has, uh, yeah, I guess you could call it some nerve <laughs> um, yes. taking this role on, would you say? 
Yeah, so you know she is getting these awards and being lauded for rep- representing this, you know, this brave feminist vision while being in the cult where like the leader has disappeared his own life. So like yeah. so you 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 have these contradictions that you know some people are able to resolve within themselves as long as they have something p- to believe in. Basically. Or maybe she's money. the uh, perfect <laughs> yeah. person to star in this show. Oh, yeah. Because she's got that, you know, she's got the cult mindset. <laughs> no method acting here. She's living it. Yeah. Or is that method? I don't even know. I'm not an actor. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that is that is a very interesting contradiction within it. I'm going to just give, like, briefly the things that I found compelling about this and the things that made me watch it all the way through because Jamie and I really did uh, give a, a good faith effort to, you know, watch and enjoy yeah, this I show. I think we liked, we, we, we watched the first season partly because we liked it. And then we watched the second season primarily so that we could do this episode and drag on it. They lost us uh, at a certain point. Um, <laughs> what I liked about it, um, I agree with Leslie about, you know, the aesthetics of it. Uh, it is quite well shot. Uh, and I do think that they made a, a good effort at uh, producing a nice looking piece of art. Uh, for me, though, you know, maybe I'm just a dystopian personality, but I find that these sort of shows or books or films or whatever it is, um, they, they are, they're always reflecting back something of our fears, right? And something of uh, something existential about ourselves and our society. So the anti-feminist or misogynistic aspects of the show, uh, I think, uh, while not perfect, do actually express something really important, right? Because You've had, you know, women's rights obviously is an important thing. We're not going to drag any aspect of that, right? Um, women's rights, you know, were not handed to them. Uh, they were hard-fought gains over uh, several centuries. Um, and so what this show kind of presents uh, at its best is uh, this dystopia where a religious authoritarian counter-revolution has obliterated, you know, those hard-fought fought rights uh, and institutionalizes uh, this sort of implicit violence that we see today of women um, in our society. Uh, now, this isn't just Gilead, right, which is this, you know, religious cult that takes power. Uh, it does obviously, it doesn't exist at this moment in time. But there are echoes in this show of what you see in some of the worst corners of the men's rights movement uh, that you may have heard of uh, and is now kind of commingling with the alt-right or actually the alt-right consuming this sort of like PUA men's rights um, blip that happened. So, you know, in my mind, there was a, an anti-feminism of, say, the, I don't know, 60s and 70s, like uh, Phyllis Shafley, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Shafley, um, who fought against the Equal Rights, uh, rights Amendment for women. Um, that's, that seems to be gone now. Uh, right now the rising tide is really this violent misogyny that you see in the incel and the MGTOW community. Uh, you see these defenses of the nuclear family by odious fucking creatures like Charles Murray. And then Tucker Carlson. (laughs) Yeah, actually true. Tucker Carlson as well. Um, who's just Charles Murray with a bigger platform. <laughs> and then you also see, you know, uh, white nationalists themselves, the, the real fucking enemy on like Stormfront and the Daily Stormer, uh, making only partially ironic calls for white Sharia, right, as the final solution to the woman question. Have you heard of that, Leslie, white Sharia? No, I haven't heard that uh, specifically, but I do have this whole bent of like dig- getting back to traditional values is kind of like a through line between some of these weird online groups 
and like I'm actually a little bit shocked it isn't as prominent in like the mainstream GOP mm. as it was. And we can possibly thank Trump for that. Yeah. Because you cannot talk about traditional values no. Oh, no. while oh, Trump no. is president. <laughs> Trump is possibly protecting us from guilt. <laughs> well, all these resistance types want to impeach Trump, right? But who's and gonna be president Pence, if he's impeached? Mike Do they Pence. think that they get a do over and Hillary gets another shot? <laughs> right. Like, no, it's gonna be fucking Mike Pence, theocrat. Yeah. Yeah, there's the, the Mike Pence's of the world, but the white Sharia thing is like, it started off as kind of like a meme on the alt right or the it, far it's right. It's sung to the tune of My Sharona. Oh, My Sharia. I got it. White Sharia. Uh, it was the sense that, like, of bringing back traditional values, uh, but like in a white ethno state, you know, and putting win women under the authority of the men, which sounds a lot like Gilead, right? Um, in terms of it going more towards the mainstream, like you were saying, Leslie, like towards the GOP or whatever, uh, even that frog-voiced lobster fucker Jordan Peterson has uh, evasively called for some sort of enforced monogamy yeah. to fix the problems of society. Do you remember when he said that? Yes, yes. Like He's another thing. And here's the thing about Jordan Peterson that I want every like extremely online leftist to absorb and understand all your normie friends just think he's a self-help guy. Yes. They have no idea, none, about his, like, polocalings, his misogyny, his anti-trans Yeah, because nothing that he says they makes be... any sense. <laughs> well, the yes. self-help stuff does, right? Well, yeah, but the other stuff, it's like, what you have to listen to it twice to even hear what he's saying, right? Oh, yeah, that's what his fans say. Oh, you have to hear them all in content. It's like, so the thing about Jordan Pearson, like we've been so busy, like mocking him while he's just out there winning, frankly, because he, it, we ha and then every time we hear so like uh, sometimes I'll see like a celebrity retweet Jordan Pearson. And then the first reaction that like leftists have is like, fuck you, you're alt right <laughs> person now. I'm like, that person has no idea what's going on. Yeah. He just thinks Jordan Pearson is like this self-help guy yeah. who wants to use a clean your room. He's Stand like Marie like, Kondo for men. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Jordan Peterson's enforced monogamy, as he calls it, you know, that could look like a Gilead type Handmaid's Tale situation. Right. I mean, I don't think he would necessarily go that far with it because you can never pin him down to anything no. except like pet a stray cat or whatever when it walks past. I don't know what the fuck. It, uh, what, uh. That is the one thing that I am on board with, even after getting fleas twice. <laughs> I still do it. You can't stop me. So so finally, the, the, the takeaway, right, is like I, this reboot of a 1985 novel, which I've read and we'll talk about the difference between them. You know, it's timely to the extent that these kind of mostly online and disorganized ideologies, uh, it, it takes them to their furthest extreme and almost kind of like envisions what that would look like. You know, the brutality of Gilead is super insane. I mean, there's such a violent show, right? Um, but at the same time, the idea that a counter-revolution like this could happen right now is very unlikely. Uh, but maybe it is good to the sense, in the sense that it's a cautionary tale about what really existing anti-feminist ideas would look like uh, when they were militarized and systematized. So it creates this sort of very repellent universe that's brutal to watch, but uh, it's compelling at the same time because it does speak to something obscure but important out there in the misogynist community. Well, it's interesting because, like you were just saying, um, the sort of... Uh, the tactical alliance, the short term tactic. Well, they didn't mean for it to be short term, but the alliance between the traditional religious right on the one hand and these free market fundamentalists on the other that makes up the Republican Party since probably the 80s. That's falling apart right now. 
So if anything, we're moving away from that. And like I put like, in a tweet the other thanks day. Thanks Trump again. Yeah, like <laughs> I put this in a tweet the other day. But um, it, like what I took from that Tucker Carlson bit and like, you know, some people looked at me like I was crazy when I said this, but I am kind of concerned that the Republican Party is going to realign into this uh, socially conservative uh, party with some nods to like social democracy and workers' rights. And the only alternative is going to be this socially liberal uh but fiscally neoliberal party that is the Democrats that we basically already have. That's that radical center Leslie was talking about, yeah. right? Which is kind yeah. of terrifying. Very terrifying. Like, you like Tucker Carlson. Like a lot of people are saying, like he's kind of a scary motherfucker because he's willing to compromise on certain things if it can get him uh, populist points, right? And that's gonna win. That when a Republican person figures it out, he's gonna win a lot. Of people over and it's gonna suck especially if the you know by that time we haven't found any democrats with you know a spine and actually care about people more than banks like that's gonna be a problem a hundred percent in a lot of ways trump is already that like you know like we always talk like like is you know you don't want to underplay like his racism his misogyny etc etc but the fact is that mo a lot of the people who listened went to those rallies and listened to him what they heard, they heard that too, and they brushed it off just like everybody else brushed off Obama, those drone strikes of Hillary Clinton talking about super predators. People, people on the right do the same thing that people on the left do, as far as you know, you know, having the filter for all the garbage shit that their politicians say. What he was saying a lot of the time was that I'm gonna bring your job back, so I'm right. gonna help you out, I'm gonna do all these good things for you and make your life better. Yeah, you've been screwed over. Yeah, the corporations are screwing you over. Hey, the politicians screwed you over. I helped pay them to do it, <laughs> yeah, but right. now I'm on your side. Right, right. And and I can't be bought, even though I think mm -hmm. we've seen or seeing oh, yeah. more and more He's that certainly... that's not true. <laughs> but yeah, the um, I was having this conversation the other day, like. Trump makes all these sorts of feints towards uh, economic pol populism with his, you know, bring back the manufacturing jobs and, you know, America first, the American worker, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's all rhetoric. But, well, he's like, there's some something in his fucking adult brain that understands that there's like some, I don't know, some truth there and also that it's a popular position. I think maybe what Tucker Carlson is doing is taking what Trump sort of seeded and trying to put a... I don't know, like a, some intellectual heft to it and, and some rhetorical and policy heft. Yeah, exactly. Which is very frightening because, again, like that would be quasi fascist. I mean, we're seeing it in Europe right now and it's very effective and the left uh, can't really get its shit together to present a powerful enough alternative, which is bad. <laughs> I mean, yes. we're seeing some some stirrings of left populism, I think, and some reasons to be kind of hopeful. But uh also reasons to not be hopeful. Wow. Well, let's hope we don't get... We're not, we're not slouching towards Gilead. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, back. speaking of Gilead, <laughs> um, I actually... I kind of liked this show for some reasons. Um, I think it's a good story on a very basic level. You know, I identify with the main character while recognizing why other people might not. Um, she's kind of a blank slate for professional women of which I am one, you know, she's just this, like this, every woman, this like basic bitch. She just loves uh, <laughs> Starbucks. Like when uh, she loves, she loves her job. Uh, 
her even her affair is kind of boring the way she has it <laughs> like i think when she realizes that her credit card's been canceled she's actually trying to buy a latte or something she is literally yeah let's like fight for your right to latte but no <laughs> i i kind of identify with her um and you know as a feminist and an anti-fascist i can recognize the threats posed by right-wing authoritarianism around the world as well as in the u.s where our reproductive rights are certainly under attack but um I think the things I don't like about it definitely outweigh the things I do. Well, you know, no, I'll say a couple more things I like yeah, about it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Let's be generous. Yeah. To, uh... there's, um, there's a tiny nod to class in there. Um, most of the women on the show, most of the protagonists are, you know, formerly p members of the PMC. They're professional women. All of who, the protagonists, women on that show are, are Who really identify with their jobs. Yep. They saw their jobs as something good and even liberating and that's you know we've talked a lot about how that's not a very good version of feminism because it doesn't think about the 99 percent but um there is a, sm a small nod to class on the show which i appreciated when a former sex worker who's a handmaid says that at least now she has a roof over her head and it's kind of given as a throwaway line but um i think it really speaks to the ways in which people are unfree under the status quo, which so often on the show is just looked at as this idealized mm. past, you know, that was the best alternative to what's going on right now. But in fact, like, yeah, under neoliberal capitalism, like what we have now, most people are still not that free and only the rather privileged women like the members of the PMC can even think about it in that way, right? Like the idea that you're, reproductive system your your sex life your love life your having children or not having children the idea that you could even do that based on your own desires uh, for love and for family rather than your need to survive is a relatively new idea and it is still not one that's available to everyone right, right. so mm. i thought that was sort of interesting because like it made me think of the differences between like capitalism and feudalism because this is in many ways a neo-feudalist society that we're seeing on this show where you know under both systems people are relatively oppressed but you know under feudalism yeah, th I, I'm not going to say feudalism is good. Like certainly we have <laughs> you heard it here first. We have <laughs> more we have more liberties, I would say, under capitalism than we did than most people did uh, under feudalism. But also like there's no noblesse oblige now, mm. like under feudalism, at least the peasants, you know, the lords felt obligated to like feed them and house them and nobody was dying in the streets. Like, I don't think there are any homeless people in Gilead, you know, at least like under capitalism, you're more free in many ways, but also you're completely alone in the world and they will let you starve and die if you don't have a job. Yeah, exactly. So that that is gets kind of to like, the problem of this being a show instead of like a one-off book with a very, you know, compressed, kind of compact story. It's like you start to notice all these things. Like one of the things you might notice is a lot of the people in Gilead, you know, regardless of gender, might be a little or might be a little bit better off than they were before. Mm. And that's a that's a that's a problem when you're trying to present a nightmare to dystopia. That's like some like everybody seems to have something to do in, in which yeah. which you don't have in there. You have the problem that The Walking Dead also has mm. is that when you look when you're when the when they're 
whenever you know the walking dead is talking about like what they want to get back to it's just like the status quo now which is awful right <laughs> and that's like the same kind of implicit thing yeah. in handmaids tell us like what is your dream it's not to create learn the lessons of this nightmare and create a better world from it it's just to recreate get back to this world and that's almost like the longer you spend time in one of those worlds like the less you like you know really care about the dystopic elements because the only like good hope is is now like oh we just need to get back to you know a time when you know trump was president yeah. that's what, that's how you feel when you're what that's how how those people in gilead must be that's the conversation they must be having it's like oh i wish we could just go back to trump right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. well i get it in part right because uh, the current world that we live in is better oh. than the world of let's Gilead. Just, let's just, let's just put would... a, like an underline under that yeah. just so folks know we're, we are not pro-Gilead. We're not part of the Sons of Jacob cult yeah. that's going to coup everything. Obviously, Gilead is a fucking hell world, right? It's well, I, 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 well, okay. well, apparently they don't have racism in Gilead. Oh, <laughs> right. Mm, you know, so, I think from they... what I saw... <laughs> I think they do have like structural racism in Gilead, but it's no worse than the racism that we have now. There's a lot of differences between, you know, the Margaret Atwood 1985 book and the show. And one of the biggest ones is, is what you were pointing to, which is uh, the lack of any overt racism in. Which is very weird for a socially reactionary movement. Yeah, exactly. Based on the one that we have now. In the Atwood book, there's literally they call black folks they call them the sons of ham which is what actually was used under slavery too right um this biblical justification for racism and segregation or whatever there's a episode in the in the book where they're watching a news report and they are rounding up all the black people in detroit and sending them off to labor camps and it's also implied that there's you know genocide happening to, to black people same thing with jews like it's a highly anti-semitic society they give the the in gilead the choice uh, for jews to either convert or to go into exile and then just like with the spanish inquisition if it was found out that you were still a practicing jew right after that they would fucking murk you they'd put you up against the wall so like it's a, and Muslims, too. And Muslims. So it's an interesting question, right? Like, why in 1985 is this authoritarian, reactionary, theocratic state imbued with the same racism and, you know, anti-Semitism that you would see today or imagine in some sort of, you know, I don't know, Mike Pence dystopia. Yeah, they're, like, like, they're like about as woke on the topic of race as people are today, yeah. which is very weird like all the working class people on the show are mostly poc so like you still have that kind of structural racism going on but for a socially reactionary movement you would think that they would also want to preserve the racial hierarchy like what's going on there yeah not just preserve it but exaggerate it yeah. like make it make it worse for people like uh that's so and i think a part of the reason is strangely enough because the show had to be woke in real life they want like it they did you can't make an all-white show now and mm. like be like considered like a woke show like if in the book i'm pretty sure like there's no black people on camera you just talk about how they're all being murdered off screen but this one like you immediately you see like uh elizabeth moss character has like a black husband yeah, it's like exactly. oh this is what we're doing now this is what it's gonna be it's gonna be a very and you so in that sense then you now have to have like black basically um 
Nazis now, right? Yeah. Like it's the same thing that you get in um, video games now, where they're trying to, um, like in Battlefield now, where they have like you can play as like a female Nazi, a black Nazi. You like oh you have, yeah, you, know, you have this weird, you know, these weird incentives around you know liberal media and art and how they're supposed to be re- in representation. That where you now at this point, like you, you know, having black Nazis is the move to do, uh, and like Stop. that's what you have. Silencing in POC Nazi voices. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want more um, POC and female drone. Uh, pilots i think that that would be woke as fuck i mean isn't it more racist to just erase the racism that exists in socially reactionary movements i kind of yeah um but i i'm obviously they 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 got away with it on handmaid's tale because this is supposed to be you know a fancy and they can always say oh we're just updating it for the time which is i guess suggesting that you know if this happened now that uh, all black men would join up with the fucking gilead leaders too yeah no that that's that's an interesting point and and i would add to it too i think that Again, the, sh- the show is for an audience and it's trying to say something. And it's not necessarily the same thing that Atwood was trying to say. But I think in order to make the uh, gender dystopia of Gilead and The Handmaid's Tale, in a sense, maybe they had to abstract away all the other oppressions that exist under capitalism. So yeah, that they could like, just uh, focus... liberal feminists do. Right, because they don't think about class. Is that what... Yeah. So they don't I... think about race or class. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So like... I think it, it might be a move to try to isolate as as though you could actually do that, isolate gender oppression uh, in order to kind of, I don't know, uh, put a finer point on it and also maybe not offend liberal audiences who are there to see, you know, uh, a feminist hero fight against this misogynistic government. Right. But they would hate to see also racism or anti-Semitism uh, involved in it. Yeah, it, it's I, I it could be that, but I really don't think the showrunners like, like I as I say I do the show with you know people who work in Hollywood. They say they're this, they don't have this kind of thinking. Their thinking is probably more or less like, all right, we can't do a casting call for like nothing but white dudes, so we gotta have some of the black uh storm. We gotta have some black stormtroopers and Asian stormtroopers oh, okay. too. Mm. Like we'll get in trouble for that, so mm. we gotta re. Think this show, yeah, this will have worked in a book in 1985 or a movie in 1985. But now we got, you know, we got to diversify everything. We got to have everybody um, represented in this awful theocracy. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you probably know because your co-hosts are from LA and in that industry. Uh, I actually defer to you on that one. Uh, the, 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 like even having a woke like Gilead in terms of race uh, would like just sort of be the the default answer in, in liberal Hollywood at this point, right? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and then it produces an outcome and a cultural product that is probably not what they intended to say about race and reactionary movements, right? And, and you know what? It's like what when you really think about it, like what did they intend to say? It's like, oh, Trump is elected. There's a lot of sexism. Um, let's make a TV sh- a soap opera like the book about sexism. Mm, that's kind of right, like right, the right. thing. That's like the depth of the these. De- 
thinking behind all of this because I, I and this is kind of the larger point where like on our show we talk a lot about you know the politics of pop culture and media we talk about the good and the bad things we like and things we don't but what we never ever do is ask for a tv show or movie to be political because mm. all the people creating these uh things have extremely um wet brains <laughs> and, and do not have good politics are they smooth wet brains uh, is it, I think smooth brain and wet brain are like two different um, dysfunctions. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Can you break with, the taxonomy down for us? I, I think a, a smooth brain is just going to be like uh, someone who like really can't function that well in society would never be able to fake their way up the mm. ladder in Hollywood. Mm. But if you got a wet brain, you can. <laughs> you know, All right. So... Let's talk a little bit about what this show means to people in our culture, because that's I think that's an important part of any uh, Marxist film analysis, shall we say. And I've noticed that this show is really popular among the hashtag resistance types, you know, the pink pussy hat ladies who like to post terrible memes about how we're going to put Trump in prison or whatever and, you know, like drown him in kafifi. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've actually seen some pretty bad memes. Uh, even like I think what it means to people is even worse than what the show actually is, which is obviously worse than the book was. Um, and we got to evaluate it in the current cultural context. Um, so, like, I've definitely seen a strain of like, this is what happens when you don't vote for Hillary. Oh, uh, <laughs> like if Hillary were president, we'd be at brunch right now. Like who's we? I can't fucking afford to go to brunch. All right. But the best one that I saw was from like a resistance type, an acquaintance of mine. She posted it on Instagram. Um, it's a photo of the handmaids sitting around. And I can show it to you if you want. Um, and one of them saying like, oh, I know, but I just didn't like Hillary. Yes, but what about our emails? Yeah, that <laughs> sort of thing. It's like, yeah, they're, they're bit like I think the protesters who do it. I'm I'm not gonna judge who wear the handmade to like Congress and Kavanaugh hearing. I think that's fine. Like, it's, it is a popular show, and they're just referencing it. And it, and let's face it, it's a pretty easy cosplay to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm not gonna judge them. But like, some of the memory behind it is, is of course awful and like i don't even know if any of those people watch the show anymore we don't know how many people watch the show because it's a streaming service so i don't it's impossible to know like if this show is really popular and really important mm. but one thing i, I kind of did notice is that you know there's not a whole there's not a cultural war about this show hmm. there's just not like i there's no you know MRA guys railing against this show and then people fighting them back and that kind of thing that you got with like say maybe the last Ghostbusters or Star Wars The Last Jedi mm. like I you're not gonna get called a sexist if you say you don't like The Handmaid's Tale mm. but you will if you say you don't like The Last Jedi and that's a very interesting thing and I think that a lot of that comes from like how the show is marketed and promoted it, they've kind of ducked out of those battles and a lot of times when the show first premiered like when you actually read the interviews with the producers and the cast they didn't really push hard on the political aspect it was more like well this is a show it's an important show of course but you know it's about telling the story of this woman surviving this thing and 
it, and I think that's kind of also kind of the problem with the show. Like, it's it's kind of a good thing that it hasn't turned into this huge, meaningless culture war over a TV show. But it also, like, means that the show, ultimately, it's just like any other show. It's just like any of these other soap operas that, you know, the politics of it are kind of just like background noise for it. it could be anything um basically and we would still have this show with the elizabeth moss wearing winning emmys it couldn't be sexism it could be something else and you could just swap it out and we would still kind of have the same sort of thing occupying this cultural space well maybe we're starting the culture war right now <laughs> first shots fired within the left <laughs> um that's funny because uh, this it seems like maybe this could be part of your argument. Tell me if I'm wrong, but just putting this label on prestige TV and maybe we've reached prestige TV peak with The Handmaid's Tale and the you know dozens of other shows. Do you think that gives some sort of immunity to shows like Handmaid's Tale? Do you think uh, because it claims to be a hot like a, a higher form of art maybe than uh, Last Man Standing that it, it, people give it more I don't know leeway to make these sorts of choices? Uh, I would say that. You know, cause, well, let's talk about what prestige TV means. All that prestige TV is ultimately is a soap opera with better cameras. Ah. That's it. That's all a prestige TV show is. Back before the prestige thing started, when you had a TV show, each episode would, generally speaking, be its own standalone episode. Mm. You 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 get you have the mystery or the incident. You go through it for a few. Uh, for a few minutes, you know, 40 minutes. And then at the end is Bookum Dano. Next episode is a completely different thing. And you didn't need to watch every episode to follow it. Prestige TV is just like taking the soap opera format where you have these long, ongoing, involved stories where you have to watch every episode to possibly understand what's going on and just taking it, hiring better actors, doing better camera work, slightly better camera work than soap operas, having slightly more, you know, higher concepts like The Handmaid's Tale and just doing it that way. So I my, I, I really hate the term prestige TV because it doesn't mean good. It just right. means addictive. It just means right. the TV show is extremely addictive and you can't miss an episode because you won't be able to follow it. It's like my grandmother when she used to watch her stories in the afternoon, basically. Yes, yes, that's all prestige TV is. And so with the, I don't know why there hasn't been a culture war by the Hammett's Tale. I just suspect that like maybe not that many people watch it. Like, possible, like people yeah. like, like people like it, it is really weird. Like this thing that's, you know, in a lot of ways explicitly, you know, fem feminist, explicitly anti-sexist is not something that the MRAs are constantly mad about. Well, like maybe they do watch it and they just watch it as like aspirational porn <laughs> to, to them, you know? They just like jerk off to it. Uh, on that tip, the soap opera tip, it's interesting you mentioned that because obviously soap operas, you know, have to have hot people who, you know, get into trysts and they have good sex and there's like drama between them. There's love triangles. There's, you know, V poly hinges, whatever the hell they have. But um, in the book itself, uh, the commander is and the, and his wife are both portrayed as older people. 
yeah. Uh, she has arthritis, and he is paunchy, and she's disgusted by his body. In the show, you know, the update, you have Yvonne uh, Stravsky. Stravsky. She is yeah. one of the most beautiful she's people gorgeous. who has ever lived. And, and, jo- and, and then, the and like, Joseph finds, he's like the lesser finds, but he's a fine piece of ass. Like, yeah, good-looking people. young guy. Yeah, and, and I think that, like, the, the choice they made in casting of, like, not making them old, gross people, uh, obviously, is, is part of that soap opera appeal to it. Is like, you want to see good-looking people, you know, doing maybe horrible things, but also sexy things. And it draws people in and it, you know, increases the sexual tension and yada, yada, yada. And also, you know, kind of hurts the message because of course, when you just have a movie, you can just portray, you know, Yvonne's character is just all bad, right? Mm. Or Fine's character is just all bad. When you have three seasons, you gotta have twists and turns. You gotta show the noble side of both these characters, right? And you get that in the show and you have to show that the protagonist is kind of shitty too and not that great as well. You kind of have all these ups and downs and these turns and so the whatever political message you might have or moral message might you might you might have gets very muddy over time would you ever ask what are the politics of days of our lives like <laughs> you couldn't do it like it, it doesn't really make sense sure there'll be some low wave stuff that will reflect the politics of the popular culture but it is not an altruist message being delivered in a straightforward way the only person who can probably get away with that is who has that much control over a tv show is david lynch and he's mm. just fucking bonkers so <laughs> good luck finding uh, the one message from there it's like you, you you just can't deliver like a really coherent message and have it be a soap opera w- running for three seasons i think this is the same problem that um man in the high castle has Ooh, another Ooh. resistance uh tv well, show that we watch i think that they're they probably think that they're showing like oh the complexities of human nature and how people fall into these kinds of movements and things but like i i just don't care yeah or maybe it's maybe it's not really doing that but um i i think i'd like to close out this segment uh by bringing it back to how how the handmaid's tale reflects the ideology of neoliberal capitalism and the and, reasons uh, the professional managerial class that you were talking about before right um for people who don't know the definition of that, that's uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, the uh, old DSA head and uh, good socialist, created this conception of the PMC as like a different, a class stratum, you know, that becomes hegemonic within advanced capitalism that are like the doctors, the nurses, the middle managers, you know, the, the high end office workers, and uh, basically like the base of the Democratic Party, right? Subway, uh, suburb dwelling you know, two car driving uh, upper middle class folks. Yeah. And they are a group that is extremely demonized by the uh, right wing Mm. of capitalism, shall we say, and extremely the base of the uh, the left wing of neoliberal capitalism. But um, I I think I want to be fair here. Right. Because liberals are right about some things like uh, it's good that women have choices. I'm glad that we're not just you know, forced to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen anymore. It's it's good that I get to like go out there and like do a podcast and express my opinions in the world. But uh, it's it's not sufficient. Like it, all of these bourgeois rights are necessary but insufficient. Um, but also, like I think sometimes people miss the ways in which this neoliberal ideology is still actively working against the liberation of 
everyone. Mm. Like, uh, let me continue. All right. So my primary issue to this show is the most, like, like everyone's saying that it reflects reality. It reflects like where our current reality is going. But the most immediate threat to women's bodily autonomy and women's freedom worldwide is not, in fact, theocratic fascism, but capitalism itself, right? Like, the idea that we can use our bodies for, you know, for love is is a good one, but it's not available to everybody under capitalism. The only way to truly deliver on these liberal values is socialism, right? And not to mention, capitalism in crisis tends to lead to the kind of fascism that we are talking about here. So when you fight for the liberal status quo, you are pouring more fuel onto the fire Uh, Not to mention actively fighting against the only real alternatives to right wing populism. Right. Like I have a quote from Hillary Clinton. Oh, no. Who actually uh, talked about the show. So it's it's kind of perfect for this episode. She said she was speaking at a Planned Parenthood benefit. And she said, quote, I'm not suggesting I'm not suggesting this (laughs) dystopian future is around the corner. But the show has prompted an important conversation about women's rights and autonomy. Uh, As one character says. We didn't look up from our phones until it was too late. It is not too late for us, but we have to encourage the millions of women and men who support Planned, Parent- Planned Parenthood's mission to keep fighting. And uh, it, it's kind of a perfect distillation of everything that's going on in the show, right? Because she has accurately identified some of the problems that we have and the threats to women and everyone in society. But her solution is utterly, utterly wrongheaded, right? Like... Bernie Sanders got in big trouble for saying Planned Parenthood is a part of the establishment. Planned Parenthood B- is part of the 1%. But like, <laughs> they, you can't say that you support human rights and then turn around and bust your own employees' unions what? or oppose single-payer health care in California. Did that happen? Which they did. What? Uh, and like, not to sound like Connor Kilpatrick here, but you <laughs> cannot have true reproductive freedom without a strong welfare state mm. because reproductive freedom also includes the choice to have a child and properly take care of them not to mention also capitalism completely dissolves the social bonds and the community that we would need in order to successfully resist oppression right like why was everyone looking at their phones why was everyone so atomized <laughs> yeah. why was everyone a fucking sitting duck and i think that's a good segue into talking about the purge because the purge. um one of the things that helps people in the first purge to resist this violent oppression is community Yes, that was an excellent segue. Well done. Thanks, Le- babe. Leslie, again, um, big kudos for uh, finally turning us on to The Purge. Uh, we watched the first Purge and then what was it, Purge Election? Mm-hmm. Uh, on your recommendation as sort of like maybe a better way of doing uh, resistance, not TV, but film, you know, uh, cultural production. So what is it that, that made you think of this off the bat, you know, when we were talking about maybe doing a hands mail, Handmaid's Tale uh, episode? Yeah, so the purge series in general is 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 very simple it's basically a gillian like you know for uh government you know takes over they're not uh they're you know super right wing and they basically um run a purge every year to get rid of all the poor people that's basically it that's the, now most people uh, like when the movies were first suggested um when the first advertised a lot of left wingers kind of disliked him because it seems like a fascist fantasy at first mm. like uh what the purge is is like one night of the year where crime is legal and the idea that everybody normal people would just start killing each other that's a right-wing fascist fantasy that's not 
what us leftists believe what would actually happen. But when you actually go in and watch the movie, and the and the films are very good at like advertising right and then you know displaying left, you actually see that. Oh wait, it's not the it's actually what actually happens is all the rich people go and kill all the poor people mm. who are just trying to survive. The poor do not have access to the weapons, the technology that would even allow them to purge if they wanted to. All they can do is survive and all the rich people if they don't want to purge, they build a bunch of home security and but it doesn't even matter because no one's going to bother them. When <laughs> if and if they want to purge, they have all the technology, all the guns that they can, you know, that money can buy. And we also see in later films that the government actively sends out Blackwater yes. troops yeah. to go into poor neighborhoods and gun people down because the purpose of the purge is to get rid of these undesirables. And it's also and it is a theocracy too in the purge. Like there are true believers who believe that. If you let people let out all their violence and aggression on one night, that actually makes it better. But that's not. But that's just how they sell it to people. Right. That's what they sell that belief to people. But the real reason is that they believe that there's too many people around uh, for economic reasons, and they're just going to get rid of them. That's fascinating because I picked up on um, you know the Malthusian uh, aspect to that. Uh, if people don't know, uh, Jay Malthus was a uh, political economist back around the times of uh, Adam Smith, and his argument was essentially that um, what is it? Uh, population growth is exponential, but the increase in productive forces is arithmetic. So that the chief uh, crisis that faces humanity uh, is overpopulation. Uh, this has I think been disproven as we've now had we all we're gonna have 10 billion people coming up pretty soon and there are more than enough resources and food to go around for the entire world it's only capitalism that keeps things artificially scarce yeah. however the Malthusian argument can still be used in order to say there are too many people that's what causes crisis that's what causes poverty that's what causes social disorder and it is a right-wing trope that is brought out over and over again including in this book when if you look at it you know whenever they talk about overpopulation or too much resource consumption inevitably it goes to like some i don't know uh people news documentary yeah people living in the projects or like the um the masses of calcutta when actually, if you look at who's using all the resources, it's yes. us, right? Yeah, it's it's us. the fucking ruling class. <laughs> like, if you really want to save on uh, your energy bills or whatever, start start there. Start with the ruling class. Yeah, purge Have the, the ruling people's class. Purge. But that's clearly not why they're doing it, right? Like, it's an insidious argument, though. We always have to watch out for that Malthusian thing. Oh, yeah. But, like, the thing, and, and there are, it does seem like the doofuses in uh, the first purge really believe that they just they just have to do it. They can't spend anymore on social spending. Like, no. All right, let's not get it twisted. There's absolutely enough resources to go around. And as you can see in the first scenes in the projects, like these people are not living in the lap of luxury. Uh, the real reason is the wealthy, the one percent, the corporations have accumulated so much power via accumulating so much money that even like the stingy little means tested programs that the poor have now are like too much for them therefore they must be eliminated also the need for labor has probably gone down in the future and what do you do when you have a large surplus population of people who are permanently excluded from the formal economy i mean you do what we've seen already like you let drug addiction uh violent crime and mass incarceration 
and other structural factors purge them for you. Right. So like the reason we haven't seen a purge in our society is because they don't need to do it yet. But that could change. Right. What do you think about that, Leslie? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think this is what, you know, the purge gets right that the Handmaid's Tale uh, gets wrong because the Handmaid's Tale, like, the economics are always there in the purge, like always, always there in every, in every single aspect of it when they kind of have moved to the background by the time we get to the Handmaid's Tale. So it makes it very di direct connection to our real world and our real lives. And what the purge is saying is like the purge is already happening. It's just the um, prison industrial complex, right? right? This is what is, it's, it's the same thing. It's just that this is what happens on 365 days a year we just show it on one night and i what i like about the purge series especially the first purge which we should explain is the most recent purge mm. movie mm -hmm. it's, it's a prequel, prequel right prequel it's the most explicit about this it's the blackest uh film mm -hmm. of this and it was advertised and what i love it it's so brilliant because it was advertised using like maga hats mm. right <laughs> like and it was really? massively <laughs> successful it's such a black movie there's a, like all the white characters are bad like all of them are bad <laughs> it's just like black and brown people like drug dealers people from the hood you know you got the woke girl you got all these different types of black and brown people in there and it's just like pure them saying like okay we have to band together to fight like the prison industrial complex the military industrial complex right. and all these forces that are trying to eradicate us yeah and when you recommended and we watched it like we saw within maybe 10 seconds of the show like why you did because there's this sort of montage that leads up to things and it's uh it's basically like a, all these pictures that represent all the real social crises that are happening yes. right now. There's Black Lives Matter protests. There's, there's Occupy, uh, Wall, Occupy Street. Wall Street. There's like the opiate crisis. And then there's, there's the all right. Van Jones. Van Jones. A famous Maoist. Crypto Maoist. Van Jones is there. And yeah. you know what? The movie does kind of develop into a sort of protected people's war. So maybe Van Jones had something of a hand in that. Well, Leslie Lee's uh, podcast is named after uh, Maoist critique. You know, it's it's uh, the Maoist uh, struggle session. So maybe uh, Leslie is just a Maoist and he's trying to get us to get on that Van Jones tip. Yeah, we're very, absolutely Maoist, and we meet as serious, uh, seriously. Struggle sessions are good, um, and everyone should do them. Uh, it's so funny. It's so funny because when I came up with the name for the show, I wanted something poppy and catchy. At first, we were going to think about cultural Marxism, but like yeah. that's too that's too specific. Yeah, that's too on the nose. Limit. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit too on the nose. But then after we started the show, like struggle session became something that all like like normie right wingers know about now mm. and they talk about it all the time like every time like they call when Kelsey Tulsi Gabbard had to um, apologize for her homophobic uh, uh, statements in the past they were there's all these tweets about oh I see Tulsi Gabbard has been the victim of the next round of the struggle session Ooh, like every time yeah. somebody has to apologize they start calling it struggle session so it's very bad for our seo <laughs> <laughs> but it's very evocative so that's a good thing I, I would just say that us choosing uh antifada has been really awesome for our twitter mentions because we always get oh added God. by uh chuds who think that we are literally the headquarters of antifa and uh <laughs> they they're very mad at us and they're constantly adding the fbi uh towards us so it's yeah. been a, it's been a really good choice <laughs> so I also liked the openly oppositional politics of The Purge. Um, one major difference, I think, between The Purge and The Handmaid's Tale 
is that it openly embraces meeting violence with violence, yeah. at least yeah. the most recent one, yeah. right? The, the one before that, the election one, was kind of like, oh, no, if you purge the Nazis back, you're just as bad as they are. Which, like, <laughs> yes. no, fuck that. That's some radical but, censorship. But, like, I think our politics have progressed quite a bit since 2016, and that movie also came out before Trump won the election, um, and began locking children in cages and accelerating a process that had been going on for a long time, actually. Um, I mean, we also were looking at 2016 uh, when Obama was still president, right? And yet uh, black people were getting shot by the cops all the time and they needed to create Black Lives Matter. Like that predates Trump. And yes. it's important for people to remember that. But um, th there is that scene in uh, The Handmaid's Tale where she had a clear shot at the commander uh, yeah. and Serena Joy, who also deserves to be killed, mm -hmm. by the way. And she didn't take it. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I would absolutely, absolutely take that shot. Like, they rape you every yeah. every few yeah. weeks. Like, it's fucked up. They stole your child. Like, no, they deserve to die. And there was another scene, too, when um they all refused to stone that one uh, disobedient handmaid right. to death. And you think they're going to stone Aunt Lydia. And then they just don't do anything. I was like, come on, people. It's a liberal. Yeah. It's a liberal. And it's it, a liberal show. It, it, and it's funny when they did participate in violence. Remember, the, it was it's in the first episode where some a guy rapes a handmaid, yes, and so they let yeah. all the handmaids beat him to death, and they mm -hmm. just love it so much. That's it, it, like you you like, like so you'll beat to death like this guy who's been thrown away by Gilead and they've said, you know, he's, you know, he's nothing. You can kill him. But then when you have the opportunity to kill like the commander of it, <laughs> you don't. Right. Totally. It's interesting. I, I think the, the contrast uh, is that Handmaid's Tale um, is very much more, um, much more of a fantasy. And I think what's yes. more powerful about the purge is, you know, like I said, right off the bat, they've got all these real, you know, issues that are popping off today uh, in the in the first purge. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's much it's, closer it's to much reality. much closer to reality. And so um, for that reason, um, you know, it, as as a resistance show, I think it's more powerful because instead of it being like this, this dangerous, you know, future world that if we don't vote for the right person, we'll get to like you're in that world, like you're in the purge and the purge is a direct reaction to things that we're seeing on the news every single day. And I don't want to discount the threats to women's rights, right? But the primary people who would suffer under uh, President Pence would not be these white professional women. It would, no, it would be, be poor pe people, poor women in Texas in who couldn't get a, abortions or birth control. Right. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Can I, Leslie? Do do you have you ever been to New York City? Yeah, yes, many times. All right, Ooh, all right. Are we going to talk about Staten Island? I, I have to mention the we Staten gotta, Island. We got to talk thing. about it. I, I don't want to go too hard on this, but have you been to Staten Island? Have you been to Shaolin? No, I have not been to Staten Island. Well, I don't recommend it. Uh, it's usually just a place that you pass through, uh, you know, to go from Jersey to better boroughs. But um, my one critique of the purge, <laughs> the first purge, I should say, and Jamie like was rolling her eyes at me the entire time as I'm watching this, is that they choose Staten Island as the place to do this first purge. Now, I understand it's an island and it's an actual island, unlike Rhode Island. And it, it, it is a, an urban center and it does have housing projects. And if you're going to be, you know, eliminating or um, having uh, POC and uh, the underclass self-eliminate one another, it would certainly make sense to have it, you know, in, in a place like that. Except that if you look at the statistics, 
Only 10% of the people on Staten Island are black. <laughs> yeah, there are so many working class whites on Staten Island. I've, They're uh, 75%, yeah, right, 70, of the population? 75% of the population. Like, I work in, in my union. Like, a lot of guys, of course, right, in the building trades uh, live on Staten Island, along with a lot of, like, cops and firefighters and sanitation workers and, and others. But um, I found it interesting. They, they isolate the Park Hill neighborhood uh, in Staten Island, which um, is next to Stapleton, famous from Wu-Tang, and by St. George, where you know, obviously the ferry terminal is. This is like sort of the black belt of Staten Island. Uh, outside of that, like one neighborhood over, there are working white working class and Latino working class communities that are suffering from a horrendous, like the worst opiate crisis you know, of any place in the city where you know, that working class uh, could potentially be playing a part in what's happening in the first purge. And yet, like, there's no sort of way that, that, that the white working class could enter uh, because it's not, I don't know, it seems like there's no chance of there being, like, a white-black, you know, class alliance. Yeah, it seems like um, it, the, my, my main issue with the politics on display in the purge is that race and class have been sort of collapsed into one thing. Right. We're looking solely at working class black people, people of color. Um, and, you know, the fascists, the authoritarians coming in are all white. And I was wondering if there was any uh, intentionality there with uh, leaving out the issue of working class whites who live on Staten Island, who are, you know, many of them are probably racist. I think well, it's they, safe to yeah. say if they were in that situation, they would probably probably would have called, you know, the Park Hill uh, protagonists in the movies like Moolies or Moulinyan, and it would have been horrible. But like IRL, they probably would have taken up arms, you know. Well, against it's the an interesting question, right? Because it's a really hot button issue right now. If we can have that kind of cross class, uh, cross race solidarity, that kind of working class solidarity, if that's going to work in order to fight the right, or if stuff like racism and xenophobia is going to continue to divide the working class. So like, I thought it would have been sort of interesting to see, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been optimistic, um, but it, it could have said something about uh, whether the white working class, quote unquote, has the ability to, when push comes to shove, <laughs> unite with their POC brothers and sisters right. to uh, expel this fascist threat. I don't know, what do you think, what's Leslie? Your, what's your take well, on that? Well, the thing is, the, per the first purge is a black exportation film. Oh. So it's not gonna have white people in it. Like, it's a black movie, like, it's a black movie. Black movies generally don't have a lot of white people in it. Like, I don't think there's, a, it was a political commentary so much as like, what is the type of movie we're making? We're making a modern black exploitation film where black and brown people take up arms against, you know, um, fascist white supremacist America. Like, that's the kind of theme uh, behind it, having this other theme of like, oh, maybe there's some good white people who can take up arms with us. Well, it like it kind of dilutes the point, but it's not like that point. It's not like they say that's not possible right. in the film. They don't say it's not yeah. possible in the film. It's just not the concern of the film to also show this, that, and the other. Because especially since the other purges like all have white protagonists too, right? Like like the first the the very first purge movie, The Purge. It's a home. It's a black homeless guy and an upper middle class white guy who fight to end up fighting together against these um, racist uh, upper middle class uh, kids and uh, and their neighbors too. So like it's not 
the like so the, when you look at the whole series, it's not like um, it's not suggesting that it's only black and brown people who are suffering mm. under this. It's just that in this particular movie, in this particular uh, film, they focus just on that. They hyper focus on this, you know, one black and brown neighborhood to tell this one story. They're they're not discounting, you know, the possibility of all the working class getting together and survive and working together. But, you know, it's hard enough to get all black and brown people together and fight right. against it, yeah. too. Like, that's a story <laughs> worth telling in and of itself. Sure. So so maybe we're like we're reading too much and maybe asking the film to do more than, than what it, it wants to do, essentially. Um, well, you mentioned you mentioned like black. Uh, it's weird because like, I know what you mean by black exploitation and like a, a black film, like um, another amazing film that was done very recently was Sorry to Bother You. And that kind of got pigeonholed into like also like a black film, which is a it's a much less black film than the first purge, much less black and much less um, much uh, less successful too. Okay. Like it, like it, 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 it hurts. Sorry to bother you to be pigeonholed yeah, as a th black film. Th that was my question is like, what do you think? What do you think about that? Just in terms of the larger culture and, and the industry of Hollywood or whatever about like like something being pinned as a, a black film does that constrain or is it like an important part of that of our culture and our, our industry uh, that that cultural industry you know to have these outlets you know to talk about these issues that uh you know obviously anybody could consume oh no it's very constraining but that um what the per, per, what the first bird did uh, correctly is they didn't let you know that it was a black film until you had already put down your money for it ah, like nice. that's that's what they did sorry <laughs> to bother you like it had too many black people in the trailer um and like it's not a black it's not the super black movie it talks about black issues certainly but like it's much more of like a like it's about as black a movie as like half baked with dave chappelle <laughs> you remember that? Yes. Like, yeah. like love that one like, <laughs> and it has a lot in common with that movie too it's kind of like this trippy stoner <laughs> comedy it's yeah. not really meant to be just a black movie and like it's for everyone but people kind of passed it over because it was a it was a black movie and then also it didn't really get like the woke push from people like i saw mm. more you know black woke celebrities telling people they had to see go see crazy rich agents that I <laughs> saw them ever saying they had to go see sorry to bother you is it is it because I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to ditch the purge so quick. Cause I think there's a couple like more important oh, things to say. We're gonna about get it. to the other purge too, the one that oh, got the us election. all fired up. Oh my god, Jamie Graham, like us yelling at the fucking screen. It's time. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, so I think we watched the we we watched them a little out of order, right? We watched yes. the first purge, and then we watched what you told me very accurately was the liberal one <laughs> the, the purge <laughs> election night and for those of you who don't know it's when tracy flick wins her student council election <laughs> and then proceeds to murk and gulag everybody who opposed her including matthew broderick <laughs> no no it's um <laughs> it's it's a different uh, iteration of the purge in which um i i don't it's it's interesting because I guess we're supposed to side with the milquetoast liberal who thinks that you can vote out fascism. Yeah, which, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. Which, like, it, it very much aligns with reality of the radical center, right? Like, we just saw a tweet from Neera Tandon the other day saying, like, this is the time to, like, 
resist and do something that your grandkids will be proud of. And the way that you resist is that you remember to vote, preferably for like centrist liberals. Right. And I'm like, okay, Neera Tandon, like what's it going to take? What's it going to fucking take for these people to realize that the way you deal with the right uh, the, the the right wingers who do not believe in liberal democracy, who do not believe in freedom of speech, right? Like to go back to Handmaid's Tale for a second, <laughs> they they really revere these like bourgeois liberal institutions. Like she goes to the the Boston Globe or what used to be the Boston Globe, where everyone got murked by the fash, and sh and she's like, oh no, the poor journalists, and like <laughs> we're all supposed to also be upset for the poor journalists, but like these are the same journalists who cover the fash as if they're just another political party, yeah. right? Like, like somebody tweeted recently, the New York times is probably going to run a story when they're being like shot up by the fash, like <laughs> meet the dapper white nationalists taking our offices <laughs> by a storm. Like they yeah. never fucking learn. And in this movie, right in the election purge or whatever, like this Hillary Clinton character, this annoying liberal loser is like, I'm going to run. It's like, if you don't like the purge, like run for office and change it. I'm going to run for office and change it. And then like, they literally try to kill her once. And that's not enough to make her think that they deserve to be assassinated by the cool black underground anarchists or whatever. Yeah. And then they try to kill her again and they almost succeed. Like this guy has a knife to her throat <laughs> and the cool black radicals fucking come in and, and they, they save her life. Ass, they save her life. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, now she'll recognize that these people deserve <laughs> to be purged. Like purging the purgers is not the same thing as purging <laughs> to begin with. But no, she's like, no, if we kill them, we're just as bad as them. Like we have when to do it right. When they go low, we go high. Yeah. And then she like goes up to the guy who was, you know, 30 seconds ago, like super getting off on the idea of killing her with a knife. And she's like, I'm going to beat you so bad in the election. Like, no, <laughs> no, you're, you never fucking learn. Like, I don't necessarily believe that they should have shot her in the head as well, but they certainly should have done something to uh, neutralize her <laughs> so that they could then continue on with the rev, which as we all know, is the only way to actually <laughs> defeat fascism. Hell yeah. Leslie, what's your take on all that, having seen the film? Yeah, so I really like did not like um, the election year one. It, it, it just wasn't as good aesthetically. And of course, the political message at the end is like, okay, it's worth getting all the black radicals killed because you might yes. get Hillary Clinton to oh, win. And, and, and literally at point... And Matt Crisman pointed this out to me that actually, you know, after she wins the election, she does win the election at the end. By not that much, by the way. Like, there's yeah. a lot of red on that map. Like, yeah. in real life, she probably would have lost. So. Yeah. And o over the credits, they say that, oh, the pro-purge people are rioting yes. in the streets. Yes. And, and so it hasn't gone away. And he, and he suggests that what they should have gone to is showing her repealing the purge and then show newspaper headlines showing how eventual how the reform of the purge bill the anti-purge bill gets stripped back and back and back because <laughs> that is what a liberal um a response to the purge right. would be you and means test or put uh, tax credits attached to the entire <laughs> oh thing we got that too it's like it's it's so so fucking liberal. It's like Macron and Le Pen, right, in France. I don't know you're probably familiar with that with that politics. Yes. It's like 
so we got to put everything behind this fucking eye banker Macron so that we don't get the like warmed over fascism and xenophobia of Le Pen. But you're but just nothing, pouring fuel in the I fucking know, fire. Nothing that Macron is doing is addressing the structural and material conditions of people's lives that would make them vote for a fascist to begin with. And nothing that she does in this movie addresses the reasons yeah. that gave rise to the purge party <laughs> in the first place. Right. Like that's all the fucking Democrats have is like, oh, I think you should not purge people. But I'm not going to offer you any real alternatives. <laughs> so even even if she gets elected and like temporarily managed to undo the purge and I guess, you know, it's implied puts the full weight of state power and state violence into enforcing that because the purge is no longer legal. Uh, she can't prosecute people under our legal system for doing shit that was totally legal when they did it during the purge <laughs> times. Right? Yeah. Like just like the Obama administration norms and rules. didn't prosecute uh, the bankers <laughs> who caused the financial crisis or the people who committed war crimes in Iraq. Like they just got, got off scot-free. But even if she was able to, you know, enforce with state power, uh, not to purge, like you're only postponing the issues. Right. Like I'm pretty sure the, the the underlying social forces would remain that led to the rise of the purge party in the first place, and they'd probably just fucking win again four years later. Leslie, we are we got so worked up as we said before that we were yelling at the fucking screen. Uh, <laughs> we gave you a lot right there. Uh, what what do you got uh, on this whole like uh, radical center lib way of getting rid of a orgy of violence that happens once a year to eliminate surplus populations for social? order uh, the scary thing is like i think it's becoming real like i think the response to trump has created this sort of radical centrism this com this you know radicalism completely unmoored with any like idea of a better world a better future or disrupting the status quo or any like sort of like really looking at the material conditions that got you in here in the first place right like it's just like we need to go back to what was before we don't need to think about how we got here we don't need to think about how what was before led us to here we just need obama in office again if you ask any of these people what they would kill for mm. what they would blow up buildings for what they would crash planes into buildings <laughs> for it would be to get Obama back into office <laughs> or so Hillary twisted. Clinton in office. Yeah. And that is all that is to it. And that's, and because their sent their radical centrism is also like rapidly opposed to someone like Bernie Sanders or the politics of Bernie Sanders or really any politics that like are disrupting the status quo in a good way too. Like they don't, they're just so afraid because in, in, in some, a part of this is like they thought they but buy into the idea that the reason, you know, Trump happened is because Obama possibly went too far left. Right. Like they actually <laughs> sort of believe that and they believe that, you know, if Hillary Clinton had been given a fair shot and that, you know, Putin had interfered, she would have, you know, brought in that glorious permanent democratic you know hold of the presidency which everyone was saying was going to happen around 2015 2016 mm -hmm. all you I, I, people have forgotten this everybody you watch rachel Mallon say oh the republicans have just given up on ever winning the presidency again like yeah. that's what yeah. that oh, was the thinking and shout out to the uh russian purgers that appear as antagonists <laughs> in that movie right <laughs> that actually does happen do you remember that leslie where like there's a bunch of uh 
uh, like uh, what do they call them? Violence or purge murder tourists? tourists? Murder tourists. And some oh, of them have Russian yeah, yeah, accents. Yeah, yeah. They're like, they're we, like we, about we to love kill America. Them. You know how to. They're, yeah, they're all dressed up like fucked up versions of like Uncle Sam and the Statue uh, of Liberty <laughs> and shit. I do remember that one's actually really funny. That part actually. It's hilarious. It's might good have to have a, some comic relief. It might have been a reference to like the whole Putin thing that was happening in 2016. I don't know when it was coming. I don't but. think it was. A, I don't think it was a, a reference. I think it was just meant to be like funny, like or meant to show like how fucked up. Like it's probably a reference to like gun violence, actually, mm. um, because you do have gun tourists here. I lived in Japan. People would come to, will go to Hawaii. And like when they're on vacation in Hawaii, they'll go and shoot guns because they're because you're not allowed to have a gun in Japan. So oh. I think it was more a reference to that sort of thing. And the NRA also plays a big part in funding the party of the purge. Right. So that yes. makes a whole lot yes. of sense. They explicitly say the NRA funded the uh, first <laughs> first father's party. Like you, You're not getting that kind of political commentary, unfortunately, in, in almost anything. Else. No, not in The Handmaid's Tale and, and not in like a lot of other resistance drama. Another thing. Uh, that comes up in the uh, election one too is that because this purge happens once a year there's an entire like industry that pops up around it like the main black protagonist who has a small business in uh where is it dc or whatever he uh loses his purge insurance <laughs> they want to raise yeah. his rates right mm -hmm. before that happens and you obviously would have to have like all sorts of private security that industry would be very well served by the purge uh you obviously you know the gun industry and this that and the other thing so like mask makers Yes. Halloween stores, <laughs> yeah. Halloween stores. Mm -hmm. Ricky's uh, Ricky's Halloween store would be really, really popping after that. Yeah, for and, sure. And negative shout outs, by the way, for uh, all of the black men dying to protect white women Fuck in all of the shit, shit that oh we've been God. talking about. They're like human right? shields for these. Oh. Like it's really, uh, it's really atrocious. And at least in The Handmaid's Tale, I will say this for The Handmaid's Tale, like. I guess we're supposed to feel at least kind of bad, right? That all these poor POC keep dying because of June while <laughs> she gets to stay alive. And maybe it does kind of point at the different kinds of oppression and the different degrees of violence being enacted on white women versus everyone who's not white. I actually really disagree about that. It happens because you can't kill off the main character. You yeah. can't kill Elizabeth Moss, so you have to kill off the other people. This is something that has been happening in comic books, right? Everybody, I'm sure a lot of uh, comic book readers have heard about the thing called women in refrigerators um, that Gail Simone started after uh, Green Lantern's girlfriend got murdered and shoved in the refrigerator. And, it's like, and the response was, we have to stop this violence against women in comic books. But like, what, what's really happening is that if you're, you're going, you, if you're going to have these serialized stories that goes on for years and decades, you have to kill off a few people mm. and you can't kill off the main character. So you're going to kill off their black best friend, their mm. girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera. And so the call, the, you know, the intel does really, so the liberal call is just like to treat the side characters better, which just doesn't happen and makes for really messy and uninteresting stories. What you, you should really be calling for is to have more shows with, you know, female protagonists, black protagonists, black women protagonists, and then kill off all of their boyfriends. Like that <laughs> should be uh, how it actually And The Handmaid's Tale is kind of an example of that. Like, you do have a female protagonist. She has a bunch of, she has diverse friends. Can't kill her. Gotta kill the friends. That's yeah. just, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to give the show credit for making that statement, I guess. It's more of like a meta statement that we could take from it because of what you just said. 
Well, I'm I'm hyped like to get this different perspective on things because obviously on struggle session and uh, in your conversations with your co-hosts, uh, I think you have. I don't know, like a deeper analysis of how like the narrative arcs and like the kind of structures that create this culture industry force different narratives into certain directions that I, I haven't even thought about any, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I think from a lot of, you know, I, I like I've like when you the pot, the videographer, the video essay that you talked about in your Fight Club episode. Oh, yes. Where Maggie she, Mayfish. Yep, yeah, out. where she was just approaching it straight up like everything in this film is just being beamed directly from the director's brain right. with nothing else uh, to it. And like, that's not how films are made. That's not how TVs are made. TV shows are made. That's not how anything's made. It's a, it's a, it's sometimes it, a lot of this stuff is coming from the creatives behind it. And a lot of the stuff is coming from like the material conditions around the making of, of the show, the culture around the show, etc. You, you have all these, like, uh, like uh, Fight Club is, you know, a great example of a film that if it came out 10 years later would have been interpreted ex it very, very differently, even if it were the same frame by frame. Right. And, but but uh, specifically the ending where, you know, in 2000, where you have an end where you have, you know, this terrorist group blow up bank buildings. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's like a bad thing. That's going too far. That's taking things too far. That movie comes out in 2009 and you would have had like middle class people <laughs> going out and doing the same thing themselves. Right. <laughs> like you, he, uh, David Fincher would have had to literally change what Project Mayhem was doing in order to get a point his cross that uh, get the point across that they were going too far because it wouldn't have seemed far enough. All of these things take are, are you can't just isolate a film, look at it and just beam and just expect to get like a really clear message out of it without understanding the other thing now that doesn't mean that you can't like enjoy it and take your own messages from it but you have but if you want to make a statement about a, a larger statement you have to contextualize all these things because anybody can watch a movie and come up with some bullshit political um, reasoning behind it but that's not real mm -hmm. right that's just like when you have to write a paper in grad school right right so what I think that the the election, the purge election film did, which was really fascinating, is whether they did it on purpose uh, or whether they did it, you know, uh, unconsciously or whether it was sort of this moralistic uh, choice that was given to the actors, to the protagonists and to the audience. They did create what was essentially a black militant um basically like anarchist mutual aid society that had like an, an armed wing that was prepared to go and like and waylay these fascists in a church and fucking murk all of them. And there's this kind of play, this tension back and forth between what's, you know, could generously be called a revolutionary force on the one hand. And then, you know, our liberal, uh, you know, antagonist who doesn't want to perform any sorts of violence at all. Yeah, and, and supported by the sort of respectability politics of the uh, black small business owner. Yeah, and but but it's fascinating that that makes it into the film, even as something that we as the viewers are supposed to think is the bad thing, like killing fascists. It's fascinating that there is even that tension to begin with between like a sort of you know insurrectionary organized anarchist wing uh, on the one hand, and then bourgeois politics on the other what do you think of that 
Um, yeah, and and that's when the reason that happens because that movie was made and came out under the Obama era. If that movie came out now, people would be pissed off right. watching that. Like people would be pissed. And if you had put out the first purge during the Obama era. Fox News would have been doing stories about this horrible racist new film about killing white people for mm. no good reason. Like that is mm. what it would have happened. Like you have to, you uh, like, it, there's so like we can watch all these films, but they're all such a product of their culture and their environment. That's why it kind of drives me crazy when people say like <laughs> you know, uh, culture, everything, uh, politics is downstream from culture. Yeah, it's right. just yeah. completely <laughs> absurd. Yeah, I I thought I thought the same thing. Like. I think the differences between the first purge and the election purge that was made just uh, a few years earlier really speaks to how far we've moved in such a short period of time, right? Because in the newest one, it's absolutely acceptable to fight the fash with violence. Hell yeah. And like, if the activist girl in this movie was like, oh, I'm just going to run for office and then like <laughs> maybe we'll outlaw the purge, people would be like, no, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. So in that way, I think Trump's really uh, heightened some of the contradictions that were there all along. And before I throw it to Leslie, too, I think it's lit that in both instances, the antagonists, really, the, the military force that come in and just fuck people up are straight up They're white Nazis, supremacists which, with swastikas way, and SS. You do not need to import racist white people to Staten <laughs> yeah, Island. Right, exactly. But it's <laughs> an interesting dynamic well you had you, well you had the important ones that know how to shoot fair <laughs> yeah, enough. that's fair it's also interesting that they're still even having elections during the purge time because like at, at first i was like oh that's that's weird that they're still having elections i was like no neoliberal capitalist democracy can absolutely accommodate this because look at what it's accommodated already right, right? like it's <laughs> yeah. not that much of a stretch to imagine something like that happening and and that's kind of the important like why the purge just works better even the liberal one it's like people a lot of people support the purge buy into the birds like the birds like the big thing of the first film is that ethan hawk's character is pro purge at the start of the movie and he makes all his money selling purge proof uh home security mm. systems like you have you have all these people who buy into it who um who if even if they don't buy into it they feel like a sort of apathy about it because there's nothing they can do to stop it except to try to survive that night that's why like the you know, when you look at Gilead, where you have stormtroopers on every single corner, not only is it heavy, heavy handed, it's probably unnecessary. Right. Yeah. Like you don't need stormtroopers on every corner to get people to accept a lot of violent bullshit. I mean, you you, know, you have, you know, child prisons now. Right. And you don't yeah. need you don't need stormtroopers yeah. to stop us from uh, get breaking those kids out. Like and if you look at even just like the black experience in America, you know, it goes from being brought here into slavery and then like a brief period of reconstruction and then Jim Crow right and then you know even after segregation ends you have you know uh, redlining and you have blockbusting and all that and then you know as it moves forward the carceral state essentially which does as Jamie said before a great job of getting rid of surplus unwanted you know dangerous classes who are living in urban areas you even had you know HUD the, the housing and urban development um, of the federal government had a thing called uh what was it spatial uh it's called um spatial deconcentration which was like a 
plan that they put in to take these communities that had rioted in the 60s and 70s and basically like disperse them throughout the city in order to gentrify those areas, but also to like, you know, undermine the collective action of quote unquote dangerous populations. So like, let's just put another marker in that, that the purge is a very explicit example of something that's happening implicitly day to day and has been for like a hundred hundreds of years. Yeah. Every day is the purge. If you're black, every day is the purge somewhere in America. That's the point that you re that's really driven home, driven home by the first purge with the Hammy's Taylor saying one day, maybe this thing might happen this bad. Even though Margaret Atwood does say that all the violence that she portrayed in the book is something that has happened to women at some point in history. It just feels so like disconnected. It feels just like, it, I mean, not just like, but it kind of ends up feeling like you're watching, you know, Hunger Games, mm, you yeah. know, like that kind of, you know, a little bit absurd dystopia, which has bad things that could happen in the real world, but you can't really see coming out of our real world. The purge like makes it really easy for you to imagine this thing happening uh, now. Like, like they do a really good job of that. 100%. Yeah. So I'd like to finish out this conversation with a little nod to the future. And I am, of course, talking about Generation Z which uh, maybe doesn't come off so well in the purge election night, but <laughs> might have some real potential for the future, right? Because we see these girls, they're like clearly doing some kind of homage to spring breakers. They're like dancing around <laughs> yeah. in their tutus with their like rhinestone coated machine guns and oh, oh, saws or whatever. Real, real fast, they have a demo saw, which I use all the time at work, but it's like chrome plated. Like you would have an AK-47 and it's got rhinestones on it. I think that's fucking lit, but go on. Yeah, so like in an earlier scene, uh, the old man store owner tells her that she can't steal candy and she's like really fucking pissed about it. And then she comes back and she's like, I killed my parents. Old man, I'm going to fucking murk you too, you cocksucking motherfucker. Because she's got a little potty mouth. And you, don't tell me that I can't have candy. And like, it, it, it's really, it's kind of upsetting because... I think she's kind of onto something, right? Like this <laughs> capitalist system that raises you up to only care about candy on the one hand, and then, you know, deprive most people of candy that they want on the other. Like, of course you're going to get some pushback. I just want them to like maybe educate themselves, maybe read some like radical black Marxist literature, and maybe in the next purge, they'll be the heroes. <laughs> what do you think about that? Will they be the heroes? Uh, I don't know about that. Well, I, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the girls, they were really weird. I feel like a lot of it was just like they came up with this cool aesthetic and look cool. Like murderous schoolgirls is a pretty common yeah. theme, especially in anime. And they wanted kind of to put that in. And they were kind of trying to show that they were, you know, these privileged private school kids who were harassing this small business owner i think they were it was too friendly to the small business owner like he should yeah like small yeah, business absolutely. owners suck too yeah. but like i don't know i guess like the point i guess like again this is the more liberal purge so like it would have been better if it, they were just harassing like a homeless guy right, <laughs> and like right. that, because that's a little bit more realistic right that's probably what would have happened i think that would have stayed truer to the purge themes to have these privileged kids trying to murder someone that's really really disadvantaged i don't know i disagree i think that they are the revolutionaries of tomorrow <laughs> and you know what i guess we'll see who's right in the next purge movie
I think they all didn't they all die. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> well, that's well, true. But their you know cohort, what? their cohort, their cohort lives on. Like Generation Z, uh, it cannot be denied. And I think a lot of us elder millennials are maybe a little bit alarmed by these little uh, feral. Tech, tech, these yeah. these feral children of the World Wide Web. <laughs> you know, these like tech adult psychopaths who just like play violent first-person shooter video games all day long and then go home and like yell at their parents but like i don't know i feel like in a in another world maybe we can work with that kind of anarchic nihilism you're not saying shit you won't follow i don't know about that, that one <laughs> that's, that's fair well let's leave it at that because uh you know Good meaning. Uh, people can disagree on things, uh, you, you know, about the revolutionary potential of those uh, feral Gen Z um, I'm, kids I'm, rising up. I'm team drug dealer who looks like 50 Cent. Oh, as hell yeah. As our proletarian hero. He I, had I, revolutionary my, my discipline. Revolutionary discipline, right? Yeah. I mean, he was a small business owner in a way. In a sense. He was sense. also an in outlaw. In a so he sense. sort of occupies that liminal space, right, between boss and worker. Yeah. And, and, and you know, he was he was a little bit, you know, too stringent on uh, his um, his employees at times. He did mur have to murder a few, but yeah. they, to be fair, they deserved it. They did. Uh, they tried to murk him, and they tried to purge when he didn't want him to yeah, purge. Yeah, they were trying to purge. Like he, he said, no. And no, I just want to say, I really love the fact that like a drug dealer is the hero yes. of this oh, movie. Like that is yeah. awesome. Well, maybe since he, uh, spoiler alert, gets with the activist chick at the end, they can create some sort of synthesis. Yes. you know, of like her social consciousness with his um, militancy. And, you know, general heart of gold and communitarian instincts to create like a real fighting resistance force in the world. Well, unfortunately, the first purge is the prequel. So there's at uh. least 15 more years of purges. <laughs> that well, happen. They're biding their time. Yeah, maybe the seas, they're like an underground network like they have in Gilead. Maybe the, they uh... started the underground network that we see in the election night purge. Huh? Huh? Uh, possible, possible. <laughs> but uh, they all got killed too. <laughs> I, I guess I'm getting it. Now fan we're just doing here. fanfic now. <laughs> I just, I just love the world of the purge so much. Well, like I don't want it to be real, but potential. it's like it's so it's interesting. I know it's very interesting, much more so than the kind of bizarre world of uh, the Handmaid's Tale. Although that is a world to watch out for, certainly, folks. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Uh, Leslie, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And for any of our Antifada super soldiers out there, I don't know why the fuck you wouldn't have already checked out Struggle Session, Leslie Lee the Third's uh, show with his co-host. But if you haven't, you better fucking get on there right now and become a patron of them. And for anyone out there listening to the Antifada, for just $2 a month, you too can get bonus content, access to our Discord, and the satisfaction to know that you may also be seeding the next revolutionary synthesis of struggle session type cultural criticism and, uh, I don't know, really goofy, weird, bad takes by, uh, you know, a couple of goofy married people from uh, Brooklyn. That's right. Andy's not here, so we can talk about being married. That'll be the bonus, just you and me telling love stories. As much stories. as we want. Sorry, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Leslie. All right, thank you so much for having thanks, me. Thanks, man. Let's do it again sometime. Yes.